This is the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. This is Dr. Benner. I'm here with Scott Bauman, and tonight we have a special guest. The namesake for our podcast, Dr. Don Shelbourne, is here tonight to discuss some more information about patellofemoral instability. And uh, we hit this last week talking about initial evaluation and classification system for patellofemoral instability. Uh, and this is all really based on uh, the history of how we've developed this protocol. Uh, it has really developed into that treatment algorithm and that classification system that we all now utilize at our office. So we wanted to bring Dr. Shelbourne on tonight to talk about the background, what it was like when he started in training, some of the trials and tribulations he went through early on in his career and lessons he was able to learn and put into practice. And, uh, and of course, as he always does, follow patients for a long time, see how they, how they turned out and uh, end up developing this algorithm for us. So that's tonight's episode. And Dr. Shelbourne, thanks for coming on. Pleasure, Rodney. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a great episode tonight. This is going to be a similar episode to the three-part series we did on contralateral ACLs when we had Dr. Shelburne on for one of those episodes, and he was able to go through the history and the development of how he came to start doing primary contralateral ACL reconstructions and how the rehab changed and and really evolved throughout the years, and it, it ended up being some some great insight. And you know, myself, I've been with the clinic for about ten years now, and, and that's you know a fourth of what Dr. Shelburne has had in his career. So it's it's been a huge benefit for me me to work in the setting that I'm at. And, and Dr. Benner, I'm sure you feel the same, that you come into a place that's so established and you're able to uh, reap the benefits of what has been laid before you. And, you know, there was obviously 30 some years of of practice that Dr. Shelmore was partaking in before I even got to the clinic. But the the history and the, and the background behind a lot of these treatment philosophies was already laid. And I think it's a great opportunity to be able to sit down and talk with Dr. Shelmore to not only learn uh, how we are uh, treating like we are, in the current day, but more importantly, how we got there and you know what mistakes were made, what evolution there was in terms of the treatment. So it is going to be a similar episode to that contralateral ACL reconstruction. And, and I've heard some of these uh, stories and, and the history behind the development of this patellofemoral instability algorithm. But uh, like I said, I think it's going to be a great conversation tonight between the three of us. And to kick things off, uh, might as well start from the very beginning. Dr. Shelbourne, uh, can you speak a little bit about what the history was and, and what led to the patellofemoral algorithm and the classifications that we talked about last week? Yeah, sure. The, uh, the number of people that we see with ACL tears is much larger than most people in the country, but it's still the average person out there might see 10 to 20 ACL tears a year. And when you look at patellofemoral instability problems, We've done 7,000 ACLs and 700 patella realignments. So 10% of the ACLs are what we see with patellar instability. So if the average guy sees 10 ACLs a year, he might see one patellar instability. And so it was something when I was a resident, I don't remember seeing any patellar instability that was a traumatic problem. I only saw it when I was at Riley. And it was with kids that had congenital problems that led to their patella dislocating, and we had no idea how to treat them. And again, since it's not a crippling, disabling problem, we had nothing to offer these people except, oh, maybe go to therapy, maybe go to therapy. And I had no clue what the heck that was going to do. So I'm doing a fellowship in Wisconsin, doing a sports knee fellowship. And now I'm starting to see some sports-related patellar dislocations and not the congenital dislocations that teenagers, young kids get. And it was a totally different patient population. And at that time, we were doing shoulders, we were doing ankles, we were doing a little bit of everything. And so we were trying to learn, I was trying to learn an operation to do for 
patellar instability. I did Bristow's for shoulders. I did Christmas Stokes for ankles. And I learned how to do triads for knees. <clears throat> so anybody with patellar instability, we medialized the tibial tubercle. And we did that because most people that had patellar instability, when you do a merchant's view on both knees, the knee you're operating on has a more lateral patella than the knee that's normal. And so to correct it, you're trying to medialize the tibia. So it made sense. You know, the, the triad procedure makes sense. You do a merchant's view, one patella is lateral, the other one's not. You medialize the tubercle, you correct the problem. So that's what I did. And that's all I learned in my fellowship is how to do a triad. So I'm starting practice and I'm doing triads on everybody. And mainly people that had Birchins views that were abnormal. But the weird thing is we had a lot of people with abnormal Birchins views that had, I didn't realize it at the time, that had a J sign, had patella alta. And those people didn't do very well with a triop procedure. Because instead of having a J sign, I made their Birchins view look better. But now they had an L sign. The patella is still dislocated. So... I'm finally looking at all of our ACL patients trying to come up with a way to treat them better. And I'm looking at our patella realignment patients, and I couldn't figure out why my ACL success rate was so high and my patellofemoral instability rate was about 70%, maybe. And that was the way it was in the world at that time because residents at that time were being taught that don't operate on patellar instability because the success rate of surgery is the same of non operative treatment. And both of them were around 70%. Remember, there was a big Scandinavian study that showed that, that if you operate or don't operate, 70% success is considered okay. So I figured, well, my success rate of being around 70%, I guess, is not that bad because it's the same as everywhere else. But I wonder why it's not that good. And so I was looking at patellar tendon length, and my ACL patients had an average patellar tendon length of 48 and our patellar instability patients had an average patellar tendon length of 54. I kept thinking, wow, people with patellar instability just have longer tendons. When I looked into it, half of them had 60 millimeter tendons and half of them had 48. I'm thinking, sitting there thinking, okay, I didn't realize that tendon length and patellar instability is different. And it was. And that's where I realized some people have long tendons, some people don't, some people have congenital dislocation, some people have traumatic. And that really got me to look at my patellar instability patients a heck of a lot closer. And that's when we started slowly but surely coming up with the algorithm that we now have. Let's give them, let's give our listeners a little bit of an idea on the timeline. So you were in residency, I believe, from 76 to 81. Is that correct? Right. And then and then fellowship year after that. So we're talking around early 80s. And I, I did the INSOL fellowship, and I'm sure you remember back in those times as well. Uh, they were doing a lot of proximal realignments, a lot of VMO advancements. We were still doing some of those that when I was a, when I was a fellow there in 2011, 2012, um, as a soft tissue thing. And then it seems like the bony procedure was really was really the triad to cut the tubercle and move it medially. Uh, did you do any uh, any of these other soft tissue procedures early on in your practice, or was it really like you talked about with Bristow's and Christmas Snooks and other kinds of uh, joint instability where you had or you know where you had just one thing to go at patella instability with well it's interesting Roddy like you and I now when we do triops or we do distalizations many times we do medial imbrications and back in the day when people had a lateral patella 
I corrected it by only moving the tubercle medially, and I never did anything proximal. When I remember I had a 12-year-old kid one time come in who had open growth plates, and his Mercer's view showed his patella was very lateral on his involved side and normal on his other side, but I couldn't do a tree out. And I'm trying to think, okay, what should I do? Well, if his patella is lateral compared to his other side, there has to be something soft tissue that tore that allowed the patella to go lateral. And so I did an MRI scan, and I realized that he had a medial retinacular tear off his patella. And it was one of the first times I ever did a proximal soft tissue medial imbrication to try to correct the lateral patella. Up until then, I had never done that. I also had people that had lateral patellas that had long tendons. And I slowly realized that I can't just medialize these people. I probably have to distalize the tubercle, but I had never done that. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you distalize the tubercle anatomically and, and correct this problem? And it took me a long time. And, you know, Rodney, now that you're here and you've kind of perfected that for me, I struggled for a long time figuring out how to distalize the tubercle. So we had two different distalization procedures, one for people that had normal patellar tendon lengths and a lateral patella. Mm -hmm. compared to the other side, and then one that had proximal patella with patella alta. And that's probably more than what we're seeing now. Then we're probably doing more distalizations and triops, I would bet. Yeah, tell us about the uh, about the distalizations. I know that's something that we do, and we've we've come up with some some methods around how far to distalize people, who needs it, who doesn't. But at the time, uh, again, back in the back in the seventies and eighties, when you were uh, really coming up in orthopedics, uh, that was the old Hauser procedure. Tell us a little bit about that. What was what was good and bad about that? Well, correct. Back 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 in the day, the Hauser procedure was the go-to procedure, like my triage procedure was. And Hausers were done on everybody who had a dislocating patella. And if you had patella alta, it was definitely appropriate because you had a patella that was too high and you distalized the tubercle. But if you had a normal tendon length and you distalized the tubercle, it kept it from dislocating for sure. But it was almost like the Hauser, the Hauser procedure was described in the late 30s, I think, by a general surgeon. And back in the late mm -hmm. 70s or 80s, there was a long-term follow-up of Hauser procedures. And it was almost like somebody was shouting, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, when they looked at long-term Hauser procedures it caused patellofemoral arthritis. Okay, yeah. so even though it was a correct problem to prop or correct procedure to prevent the dislocation, people had short-term good results, but they had long-term patellofemoral arthritis. So all of a sudden, the Hauser procedure became abandoned. People said, "Oh, don't do a Hauser, don't do a Hauser, don't do a Hauser." Well, don't do a Hauser in anybody or in everybody, but it's correct for somebody. Now, so the biggest problem with patellofemoral instability is that people try to have one size fits all. Where I, when I was a resident, the only two joints that had weird dislocating properties were shoulder problems and knee problems, patella problems, because people had a predisposition to shoulder dis dislocations, and they were totally different than traumatic. And people had predispositions to patellar dislocations, and they were totally different than traumatic. But I didn't see enough patellar dislocations at all to be able to judge how to classify people into traumatic, normal tendon, high tendon, lateral patella, whatever. And when you looked at the overall success rate of about 70% overall, 
it made sense because you're doing a shotgun approach to four different problems. But when you looked at the data now on individualizing what we're doing, we're like 95, 98% successful with what we're doing because we can classify it according to the algorithm we have. And at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, Shelburne, the Hauser procedure was kind of indiscriminate with, with regard to how much to distalize the patella, that you know, a little was good and more was better, uh, that made sure that the patella would not dislocate, which, of course, then of course, unfortunately led to, as you said, patellofemoral arthritis, but also some pretty bad flexion loss along with that. I mean, was there, was there any real, did people talk at the time about limits to the Hauser procedure, who should have it, who should not, and if you distalize the tubercle, how far was too far? Well, no, that was totally that was totally on my own, Rodney, because at that time, when I was talking to John Fulkus and other people about distalizing the tubercle, everybody said, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I said, well, there's some people I think that's probably indicated, and Fulkerson and uh, so Lisa Arendt and people I talked to that were big in patellas, nobody distalizes tubercles because of the bad thing with the hauser. And so when I started thinking about that, I kept thinking, well, there's got to be some people that is justified in, but then how do you decide who it is and how do you decide, you know, if you should justify distalizing it or just medializing it? And the J sign was something that really helped me learn that people that had a J sign means their patella was too high and it never, never stayed in the trochlea. And so people that had normal patellas, it didn't disengage from the trochlea. So when I started looking at people that had longer tendons, if when they extended their knee, the patella dislocated because the patella was high and they had a J sign, those were the people that I really wanted to pull the patella distal to make sure the patella never came out of the trochlea. And that's where, you know, you and I have done this before. How far do you distalize it to distalize it enough, but not too much? And what's wrong with distalizing it more than normal, as long as you keep it from disengaging from the trochlea? But then the problem comes, how do you not lose flexion? You know, and it's just been a whole whirlwind of things we've learned over the years now that we've started subclassifying these, distalizing the the patellas, I think, probably now since you started, compared to now, we're probably distalizing more now than we have in the past. So, Dr. Shelbourne, you said uh, in historical sense you were treating many of these patients that were coming in with patella dislocations with a with a triot, and you were medializing that uh, tibial tubercle. Were there any rehab-specific implications or rehabilitation challenges that you were seeing when you were using that shotgun approach and treating everybody with the same technique? When I trained in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, we did a triad, and we medialized the tubercle. We just put one screw in at the tibial tubercle where there was cancellous bone, figuring that's all we needed because you're going to attach cancellous bone to cancellous bone. (laughs) But then we put people in a cast for six weeks. Well, I did that with ACLs also, and when I stopped putting ACLs in a cast, I started thinking, why am I doing triads in a cast? So I started not putting triads in a cast. And I put him in the knee immobilizer to come out of the immobilizer. But then I had a couple of the triots. The distal part of the tubercle transfer pulled off. Even though there was a screw proximally, there was no screw distally. And I realized the tension part of the transferred tubercle is distal. So I started having to put a fixation screw distally. 
to try to keep the tension off the distal part of the tubercle, then I'm realizing, well, if I'm going to put one screw there, I might as well put two screws there. If I'm going to put two screws there, I might as well put a two-hole plate there. And so I started doing a two-hole plate distally, and that allowed us to really push the rehab on the trios quite a bit. The distalization part of the tubercle transfer was a little bit different because I didn't know how to do a distalization fixation. So what I did is I first did a three-hole plate instead of a two-hole plate, and I pulled the tubercle distally, and I put a three-hole plate so one hole was past the osteotomy, and I had two people that slipped and fell and split their tubercle. And so in order to replace that, I had to put a T-plate on to bring the tubercle back. And I realized, why don't you just put a T-plate on in the first place? And so I started doing a T-plate on the distalizations. And Rodney's kind of taken to the next level now where he's got such great fixations for our triots and distalizations. We can be as aggressive with them now as we are with the proximal realignments. More to come on that when we hit our surgical techniques episode, which is our which is our next one. So make make sure to tune in next week. Um, Dr. Shelborn, you said um, as as time went by, you started to then look at your results and start to notice that there were some patients that did really well with just having a triot, and some patients that didn't. And as you had with lots of other things uh, from a research perspective, you started to think about what seems to be the separating factors, and you started measuring a lot of stuff. And that's where you started to notice a difference that some of those patients with patella alta didn't do as well as the others. So talk a little bit about as you got on into treating these more, maybe. We're into late 80s, into the 90s now, where you're starting to realize that there's some separating factors between these two. How you got to the point where you noticed uh, that there were some people who a triot was a good option for, there were some people who a triot was not a good option for, uh, et cetera. Well, the triot was what I did almost uniformly, but then on people with traumatic dislocations, we had a lot of people that had a normal opposite knee on the merchant's view and a lateral patella on the merchant's view. So they didn't need a triop because their normal knee had a normal merchant's view. And so we didn't have to do anything to the tubercle. We just had to repair the soft tissue. We had some people that had a traumatic dislocation whose other knee was a little lateral, but the involved knee was more lateral. And I realized, well, they have a soft tissue problem, but they also have a pre-existing lateral patella because the other side is lateral, and those were the ones we did proximal soft tissue procedures and medializations of the tubercle. The biggest problem we've had is people that have patella alta and have a J sign and have a long patellar tendon, and so distalizing the tubercle is something that was considered bad and I'm not sure many people now even talk about that anymore because they talk about MPFL surgery. But for us, distalizing the tubercle tremendously reliably worked very well because all you have to do is keep the patella from disengaging from the trochlea. And our biggest problem is how much do we have to distalize the tubercle to prevent the patella from disengaging from, from the tro trochlea and the extension. And so we were a little bit timid on doing it to start with. And we had a lot of people be better, but we've never had people lose motion. And so we've been more aggressive with distalizing it over the years to the point that I'm not sure how far you are right now, Rodney, but I know up to 18 to 20 millimeters of distalization is not uncommon now. 
Yeah, I mean, we've definitely gotten more aggressive with the amount that we'll distalize and all that's based on imaging factors and uh, and a lot of the measurements that we make, you know, that, that, that have really started to guide our treatment in that way. You know, you speaking of uh, imaging in terms of surgical planning and determining how far to distalize patients, Dr. Shelburne, from a historical standpoint, when it comes to imaging, what's that evolution look like? Were you always getting bilateral x-rays on patients? Were you getting the same merchant view, lateral, quad uh, contraction, lateral views that we get today to uh, make these surgical decisions? What did that look like years ago and then how it evolved to where it is today? Well, no, we we were only doing three-view bilateral x-rays. We were doing AP, lateral, and merchants. And then Tom Rosenberg came out with the idea that a 45-degree weight-bearing x-ray with a PA x-ray shows joint space and airway better, so we added that. So we started getting four-view. And then we always did our lateral views at 60 degrees of flexion, you know, you have to have the patellar tendon pull out the length. If you have the knee at full extension, you have no idea how long the patellar tendon is. You have to have the knee bent long enough or far enough to have the patellar tendon pull out the length. So we standardized our lateral x-rays at 60 degrees of flexion. And we measured everybody there because we did that for our ACL patients. We started doing that for our patellar realignment patients and realized there is an amazing difference in patellar tendon length on patellar realignment patients. In our ACL patients average about 48 millimeters. Our patellar realignment patients average about 54, but it ranges from normal about a 48 up to about 70. I mean, 70 millimeters of patellar tendon length is hugely long, but then we're trying to figure out, okay, how long do you, how far do you distalize them? Well, you kind of judge, it's kind of an art, I guess. You watch at what angle of knee extension the patella starts to go lateral and the longer it takes for the patella to go lateral, the less distalization you probably have to do. But then I'm not sure where I got, where I either figured it out or asked somebody or whatever. I figured out, okay, if somebody tightens their quads with their knee straight, the patella is going to be pulled above the trochlea to the point that you can measure how far above the trochlea the patella is. But then I realized you can't do that on the involved knee because it's uncomfortable. So you have to do a quad contraction lateral x-ray on the normal knee to see how far above the trochlea, the inferior articular surface of the patella is. And that's helped us a lot to determine how far to distalize. So I think, you know, Rodney's doing more of these than I am now, but I think it's more how far above the trochlea the patella is, how long the tendon is, when the patella starts to sublux lateral. It's kind of a semi-art but you try to get the patellar tendon, if it's like 62 millimeters and it's a female, you might want to distalize it down to 46. You know, but it's just kind of a looking at the different modalities we have to decide what to do. I think the quad contraction lateral x-ray has helped us tremendously. So as you started to figure out that you could distalize some of these people and get a little bit of an idea how far you wanted to go, uh, how did you handle bilateral patients? And what did you tell that patient that says, you know what, I've only had symptoms on my right knee, I've only had dislocations on my right knee, but that they have patella alta on both knees. And when you started to think, you know what, I do need to treat this patient surgically for their right knee that's dislocating. I do think I need to add distalization in order to be able to take care of their predisposing anatomy. What do we do with that other knee and how did that, how did that evolve over time? <clears throat> I probably had about a five-year period of time where I was, if I was going to distalize somebody, 
I was very big into the symmetry knee model at that time. And I realized if I distalize somebody, that person has two different needs for the rest of their life. Anytime they exercise, they lift weights, they do anything, they have a, a right knee and a left knee that are totally different. And so my symmetry knee model forced me to take people that I was distalizing on one side if they were a young athlete and almost make them distalize their other side, even though it wasn't symptomatic, to keep their knees being symmetric. I probably had about 10 patients that I did that on. And I kind of felt bad about doing it to somebody, but I felt, well, I had to do it because I had to do it. But I had a lot of people that had patella alta, but asymmetric merchant's views. And I think, Rodney, that's going to be something you're talking about the next episode on people that had asymmetric merchant's views of the patella alta, but the other side wasn't symptomatic. I did soft tissue procedures on most of the people. And two-thirds of them got better, leaving them with patella alta. But a third of them didn't get better, and they came back because they were having problems because I corrected their merchant's view, but their patella alta was bothering them. And I realized that I had to do something with their patella alta because it was so bothering them despite the soft tissue correction. I couldn't justify doing something to their other knee that was still totally asymptomatic. So I started taking the failed soft tissue proximal procedures that were still symptomatic because of their patella alta and distalizing the tubercle and making them asymmetric, but both patellas stable. And I didn't see any problems from it. And so I realized that I was probably overemphasizing my knee symmetry idea on these people. And if somebody has a patella alta on one side, and I think that's a big part of their problem, I will just distalize the one size side only right now, unlike I did originally in the past in the late 80s, early 90s. And you, and just to be clear, you would do simultaneous bilateral tib- tibial tubercle osteotomies with distalization in some of those patients who had asymptom- asymptomatic patella alta on one knee and symptomatic multiple dislocations on the, on the involved knee. Yes, I would, because at that time I was doing bilateral ACL reconstructions on people. But I think my bilateral ACL reconstruction enthusiasm made me overdo the bilateral patella realignment enthusiasm. Yeah, and that was and so something I, you lived and learned on in time where you said, you know what, there's, it's just touch, it's just too difficult of a recovery to do correct. both of those at the same time. It's too much for the patient to have to go through on a knee that has not had any dislocations, and you backed off of that over time, which I, th- I think is a good lesson for you know younger younger surgeons to learn that um, you know that that has been tried, and that uh, it, while it can be done, it's just probably not something that we need to chase uh, unless the patient's having symptoms. Well, correct. You don't need to. Do the other side in particular, like I thought I did. You can do bilateral if you have to, but when you have a bony procedure and there's a potential danger, it's like taking a patellar tendon graft from two knees. You know, the, the the distalization part of the procedure is a potential problem. And like you know, luckily for you, I, I learned the hard way before you got here. 
Um, well, talk a little bit about as you started to put all this together in your mind. Uh, that was kind of about the time that I think, you know, that um, was near when I started to come around the office and we started to put our heads together on on how to uh, how to conceptualize conceptualize these different entities and to try to put them into groups into our mind and uh, talk about those kind of those kind of guiding principles that eventually got us to the classification system that we talked about last week. So the nice thing when we have the larger volume of patellar dislocations that we do have that most people don't have, then we can classify not everybody has a long tendon. Not everybody has an abnormal Mertzen view. Not everybody has a traumatic dislocation with an asymmetric Mertzen view. So when we started looking at our patients, we realized that we could individualize the treatment because this person was fine if they were a traumatic dislocation. And if they were fine until they traumatically dislocated, what did their knee look like before they dislocated when you look at the other knee? And if the other knee has a normal tendon length and a normal Mertzen's view, all you have to do is correct the traumatic dislocation back to that, and they're fine. If the other knee has a lateral patella, but the involved knee has a more lateral patella, then you correct both, and they're fine. If the other knee is long tendon, and this one has a long tendon, and the other one is not lateral, but this one is lateral, then you distalize it, and you medialize it, and you do a soft tissue repair. I mean, it's like... You go back and forth and look like, what were they like before and what are they like now? What are we trying to get to? And the nice thing is that when you look at the shotgun approach to patellar dislocations that are 70% successful, I mean, you know, we're probably 95, 98% successful now because we individualize everybody's treatment. And it's just a common sense now that we know the difference between what we used to do and what we are looking at now it's much more gratifying to do what we're doing. I think it's great that we eventually got to a point where we are now where predisposing anatomy, do they have it? Yes or no. Look at the opposite knee to see, do they have predisposing anatomy? And then look at the two knees, one versus the other, and say, do they have asymmetry? And then we can figure out if they have asymmetry but normal anatomy, then we just need to put the patella back where it was before, repair and re realign the soft tissues. If they have predisposing anatomy in addition to that, uh, then we need to do that and we need to change the patient's anatomy. Or if they just have an anatomic problem and not an asymmetry, maybe we just have to go about their anatomic problem. So, you know, it, it's interesting to learn over time how that how that has evolved from in, into something that now guides our treatment with, does the patient have predisposing anatomy or not? Do they have symmetry or not? Uh, uh, and and it, it really makes it a lot more of a common sense thing uh, when it comes to classification and management. Well, one of the no. things that I think bothers me is that people are so big on MPFL reconstructions right now. And I think people are trying to shotgun the knee right now with the idea that the MPFL is by far the biggest thing on the medial side of the knee. And people that have normal anatomy and dislocate the patella, when you do an MRI scan, you see the MPFL is torn, but more importantly, the medial retinaculum is torn deep to the MPFL, and that's where we have to correct the entire medial side. You know, So I think we have the advantage to having so many different patients that we've looked at with the MRI scans and x-rays and follow-up that the average guy out there may be seeing one or two patella realignments a year has to have something like an MPFL reconstruction is his only treatment protocol because he doesn't have the ability to do what you've done individualizing things, Rodney. 
So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that you think that we're kind of going backwards with the MPFL reconstruction where you feel like this has gotten back into that kind of shotgun approach where if you have patella instability, MPFL is the answer, regardless of, of some of these other parameters. Am I, am I, am I correct in that? that that's yeah, it you is, it is the modern day, more benign Hauser. In the old day, Hauser was what everybody did. Now MPFL is what everybody did. If MPFL reconstructions don't work, you don't give people a flexion, you know, loss of flexion in an arthritic knee. You know, mm-hmm. MPFL reconstructions probably don't work on people with patella alta. But you know darn well people with patella alta can live with their knee. It's just not very convenient to have a patella that slips out all the time. Now, clearly, there's been a huge evolution going from the shotgun approach and casting patients after patella realign procedures. And now, as it's evolved to the point where you're targeting these surgeries and making these more in-depth surgical decisions for these patients, how has the rehab evolved over the years? Or were there any big changes that you made as you were transitioning from that shotgun approach to the targeted approach and getting rid of casting? Or, you know, and obviously the the outcomes have seemed to increase and get much better over time. Were there any rehab tactics that were used and tried and, and failed, or has it always been getting better in that sense as well? I tried to push things a bit before you started, and I think you've taken the envelope and taken it to a new height right now. I would bet that your patella realignment patients right now have very few restrictions on what they can do. But the algorithm we have right now is individualized. It almost guarantees that the patient can get back to being okay. The only problem we have with the algorithm is people with patella alta that have asymmetric merchant's view that we just do a soft tissue procedure that works two-thirds of the time. But that's still pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Dr. Shelbourne, I've heard you talk several times before about what you believe to be the downsides of keeping people in extension, locking them out straight after tibial tubercle osteotomies, and how that can lead to um, to, to scarring and uh, loss, of, loss of range of motion. Talk a little bit for our listeners about that. People probably know, but they don't appreciate the fact that when you put the knee in extension and the quads aren't contracted, the distance from the inferior pole of the patella of the tibial tubercle is about 40 millimeters. When the quad's contracted or the knee's bent, it goes to 50 millimeters. The danger of putting somebody into an extension is you don't allow the patellar tendon to get pulled out to length properly. And one of the problems with distalizing a patella or doing anything to a patella and then putting them in extension and not getting quad control back is you might get a patellar tendon contracture. And one of the things that, you know, Dr. Benner's done with his rehab right now is that we get people bending past 90 degrees on all the procedures, so we never get a patellar tendon contracture. And that's what can happen when you put somebody in a mobilizer. You know, and, you know, we talked about patellar tendon ruptures in the past, too, but that's the same thing. Patellar tendon length is critical for patella or for knees to function normally. And after you do a patellar realignment procedure, you have to make sure the patellar tendon length is maintained. Yeah, that's something I definitely had to learn from you from a rehabilitation standpoint after these procedures was that immobilizing people in extension almost is 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 counterintuitive to what we want to be able to do with what we want to be able to do in patella instability. We don't want that patella tendon to shorten and end up with patella infra, patella contracture and lose flexion. We do want to allow the anatomy, if we've changed the anatomy, to try to guide the patella back into the middle of the trochlea where it's supposed to be. And uh, and in order to do that and, and to 
and, and also to keep us from over constraining the knee, especially on the soft tissue procedures that we probably do over constrain the, the, the medial side when we do medial imbrication lateral releases, uh, where, where you'd worry about the patella actually tilting medial or potentially even some people talk about dislocating medial, which I've never seen before, but people talk about it. I think if you have normal anatomy and you're doing an isolated soft tissue procedure like that, bend the knee. The, if the, if the patient's anatomy is normal, you reconstitute those medial soft tissues, you loosen the lateral ones to allow it to go back to the middle, and then you let the patient's anatomy take it where it's supposed to go. Right. Well, the two things, Rodney, that you talked on here is that if you try to repair or tighten the medial side and people are worried about over tightening it and you put them in extension, if you over tightened it, it's going to stay over tightened. And if you have a medial imbrication and you want to make sure it's not over tightened, all you have to do is bend the knee. People don't realize that bending the knee prevents over tightening of the medial side. And so we've never had a problem with medial subluxation, like you said, because we bend the knee. And all of our post-operative merchants views look perfect, sort of like you and I are perfect surgeons because we have these post-operative x-rays that look great. It's because we are smart enough to bend the knee. The distalization patients potentially can have a loss of flexion. And a loss of flexion can be a problem because you're taking the tubercle and making it distal. But I think what we do with the fixation you've done now and the CPM machine bending the knee at 90 degrees, I would bet that you've not had a distalization patient not be able to bring their heel to their buttock postoperatively. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I was never really taught and that I learned from you and that I've, I've been shocked by over time. Uh, that everybody just assumes that if you distalize the tibial tubercle, you got to go really slow with with flexion, which which we we do go relatively slower, um, but we still allow patients to bend their knee right away. And that if you do that, patients can and do all the time, with very few exceptions, get their get their full flexion back. That's something we'll talk about again in the next episode when it comes to a fixation from a fixation perspective, because I do think there's some technical pearls that I've tried to change over the course of my first ten years of my practice. Uh, that have led to me, led me to be a little more comfortable getting more aggressive with those patients uh, in the post-operative period with regard to range of motion. Excellent. Well, as we wrap up this this second episode of this multiple part series on patella dislocations and patellofemoral instability, um, we've talked for the past uh, you know 30 minutes or so on the history and development of this program. Dr. Shelburne, can you give any final thoughts on the evolution and the development of the algorithm? I think the biggest thing that I've learned with patellofemoral instability that unlike other joints, like when I did shoulders, I did bristos. When I did ankles, I did Christmas snooks. When I do ACLs, I do ACLs the same. And I thought that patellar instability was the same thing. I'd find one operation to do patellar, patellar instability. And luckily, the numbers I had were high, and the data we had and the follow-up was good. And I realized that I'm mixing apples and oranges here, and I had to separate what I was doing because not everybody was the same, and I had to look at the other knee. You know, when I go to meetings, I am amazed that not many people show bilateral x-rays when they talk about patellar instability. They're looking at merchant's type view, but it's only one knee. They're looking at long leg alignment, but it's only one leg. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to look at both legs. You have to look at, you know, are you dealing with a congenital problem or a traumatic problem? And it's just having the volume we have and having the follow-up that you've done has allowed us to realize that slowly but surely we're getting better and better and better. 
and it's fun as heck for me to watch Roddy take this and take the baton and run with it right now. He's killing it with his distillizations. Well, it's been great to be able to learn all this from you and kind of take the baton and keep this thing moving forward. And uh, we'll talk about that a lot next week on our next episode. We're going to be talking about surgical technique for these patellar realignment surgeries. A lot of technical pearls that we have that we've developed over time, in addition to who to do these procedures on, who to not do them, but but actually also add to that on our, on our next episode, how to technically perform their procedures, what are some things we do and don't do, and some th- some lessons that we've been able to learn over time. So, Dr. Shelbourne, always great to have you on the, the show with us and uh, thank you for coming on. Join us again next week for that surgical technique for patellar realignment surgery episode. And uh, as always, if you want to contact us, you can hit up our socials on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC podcast. You can look at our YouTube or Facebook page for the Shelbourne East Center podcast. And if you have any questions, email us at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. No matter where you're picking up our podcast, if you can leave us a comment or a review, that'd be great as well. So we'll see you next week. And thank you for joining us on the Shelbourne East Center podcast. (laughs) 